from days of long ago. From uncharted regions of the universe comes a legend. Star Joe's Podcast, episode 234, Who Are You People? I'm your host, Ryan, and welcome back, everyone. Yes, uh, maybe an unusual title for this episode, but a very fitting title for this episode, because uh, I have a very special guest with me today who has done a documentary, and the name of that documentary is Who Are You People? So when we're all done, we'll steer you where you want to go, but uh, if you want to remember what the name of that documentary is... Look at the title of this episode. Uh, joining with me today is uh, actually listener of the show. So he did not just reach out to me because he was trying to just plug something. He is also a listener of the show uh, and has been active with us uh, for quite a while now. But just so happens to also be uh, in the film industry and uh, created this uh, an amazing documentary that we're going to get into. But I want to welcome uh, Jonathan Robinson to the show. Thanks for Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Ryan. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, not to not to steal your thunder, so I want to throw it your way. Uh, tell people what this documentary is and what what the I guess the elevator pitch of what it's about. Absolutely. Uh, for anyone who really enjoys behind the scenes stills or footage or uh, anecdotes regarding any of their favorite films that they grew up in. That was really the reason why I came to you, because I thought that your audience would generally understand and enjoy a movie from their time period that they grew up and watched movies, this being Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977. And, you know, it fits in well with the whole Star Wars thing, because it was the other movie of 1977 that, you know, had to you know, vie for box office receipts. And uh, obviously this would have been from the brainchild of Steven Spielberg, another one of those auteurs that many of the audience members you know, hold dear to their heart. And with that being the situation, I I myself enjoyed the movie growing up as a kid. 
And uh, as I would, I was not old enough to really enjoy it as a child because I didn't see it in the theater. I had to like watch it on television, which meant it was edited and it was truncated with commercials and all that. And but still, it was an enjoyable enough movie. And uh, so when I would watch it in my hometown of Mobile, Alabama, it became apparent to me that this movie was made in my hometown back in 1976. And I kind of heard that over my shoulder a thousand times growing up from my mother and never really gave it much thought. And it just became one of those things like, well, yeah, but where is that scene shot in Mobile? And where is, you know, does that still exist? And, you know, what about maybe deleted scenes that, you know, they shot and yet, you know, where were those shot uh, inside the city or outside the city? And so that became eventually the reason for making this uh, documentary. And it took a long time until I don't know why I just had this wild hair to do such. <laughs> uh, and, I, and specifically, it happened, I know, right after the Saints won the Super Bowl in 2010. I, I, oh. I remember that specifically. But, um, you know, that is really the reason why because it was such a a homegrown kind of idea the fact i was from that city and the fact that very few uh, individuals who are absolute fans of the movie you know know about it much less a lot of alabamians they don't even know it was shot in the, the port city of mobile and uh so it was fun to be able to maybe open a new uh, stories that had people had not heard about open it uh, uh, to their uh, understanding of what happened and what it took to make this movie and what kind of trepidation the locals uh, had as far as an invasion of Hollywood on this small town during the mid 70s when really not a lot of things are growing great, especially right after Vietnam. So uh, that in a nutshell is, is what this documentary is about. Very cool. Now, uh, before we get into the documentary and a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff with the documentary, um, give us a little little background with you. Like, what you know, what's your background that kind of like led you to doing something like this? Like, what you know, I don't I don't know a lot uh, any of your background, and I'm sure our listeners would like to know too. Like, have, did you start going into doing stuff like this, or was this is this the the one project you're like i want to do this and i've never done something like this before like give us give us your kind of your history that led up to doing something like this absolutely i think um, a lot of kids uh, of my time period which as i say i was born in the mid 70s and really i guess you could call yourself a 80s kid or mm -hmm. i also call myself like a jedi kid because i <laughs> that was the only movie i got to see in the theater was return of the jedi Right. So if, if that puts it into perspective as far as I mean, I'm 43 years of age and um, so I'm of that bracketry of, uh, of you know, fandom. But um, uh, I grew up like a lot of other kids as far as uh, a la Goldbergs in the sense of if you've got your hands on a video camera, you were pretending to be like a great director, you know, trying to come up with the next big uh, story and so I basically, like a lot of other kids growing up in the early to mid-80s, uh, if you could get your hands on a uh, camcorder, you could basically dream up anything, shoot anything, and it was all your within your imagination to do so. And I think that was a nice little outlet you know, to actually 
see your vision or see uh, your imagination come to life with the help yeah. of, you know, kids in your neighborhood and friends you had at school and whatnot. And that, you know, eventually would lead to well, what I want to do with my life. Uh, and uh, I saw the potential for theater and later communications uh, at uh, university and basically went down that route, which was, was wonderful because I, I, I finally got to fi- uh, the, the really see the uh, example of what other people were doing there. Uh, fellow classmates. There was one gentleman that uh, was much older than I was, and he was on the weekend shooting 16 millimeter films. And I didn't understand, like, where are you getting all this equipment, David? I, I mean, are you buying all this? And he said, no, the university has a cache of 16 millimeter equipment that the International Paper Company had given, had bequeathed to the university to use. And so he said, all you got to do is just go over to that professor and make good with him. And, you know, take care of the equipment. And I'm sure he would allow you to walk away with it, you know, and bring it back the way, you know, it, it left the storeroom. And that was an interesting education because it didn't cost anything. I mean, except for membership to the university, quite honestly. And it was an extracurricular thing that, uh, had I not, you know, gone that route and especially on my, um, my own free will to do so. Then I don't I, I don't know what would have become of you know my career or what or whatever thing I might have been doing in life. So and, and the short of it is that I taught myself to shoot, to load, and to expose correctly 16 millimeter film. All I had to do was just you know purchase the film and then have it developed out in Atlanta. I believe was the local uh, the closest lab I could get to, and um, it was neat to be able to actually do projects in that medium. And, you know, then these were class projects, as a matter of fact, because I think at the time in communications, my professor told me that, you know, well, you, you got to go out there and you got to shoot a uh, bunch of emulate a scene from your favorite movie as closely as you can. Lighting wise, composition wise. And, uh, you know, don't worry about the acting. It's not all about that. It's really about just that look and that sure. uh, mizzen scene, basically. And that. You know, led me to well, yeah, I want to do the mashed potato sequence from Close Encounters. That's the first thing that popped in my head. And second, nice. can I do it on 16 millimeter film? Right. So because the video, I think, is just too ugly, too harsh, especially in the late 90s, the way it was looking. And uh, it's like if you pay for the uh, you know development of it all, sure, you can do whatever you want. And that was so fun to be able to cut it like that, and to be able to mix in the sound effects with it, and. Uh, uh, and, and it was just an interesting little experience that eventually would lead to my first film job. And some, some a friend of mine by the name of Drew Hall uh, knew that there was a music video in a shooting in Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, mm-hmm. Jars of Clay was the name of the band. And uh, they were uh, shooting I'm, – I'm not sure what the title of the song was. But they said, well, this guy named Jonathan knows – how to load film and it was 35 millimeter so i thought well gosh it's got to be easier because it's bigger you know it's not it's so uh, small and so precise as 16 millimeter and so after two days of working for free you know that led to another uh, feature at the end of 2000 and before i knew it it was snowballing and uh, i'd been in the film industry since 98 uh, and then by 2000 2001 I was in the camera department, and um, that's just the 
unorthodox way of how I got into the film industry and have been uh, in you know, loading film. And then eventually when it transitioned over to uh, the digital aspect of filmmaking that it is now, I you know, became a second AC, which is a second assistant cameraman, which is the guy who basically you know, hits the slate and then does all the other work of, you know, in regards to the maintenance of the camera and, uh, and building of the camera. Uh, but, uh, other than that, that's, that is professionally who I am. Uh, and I live in the, uh, the new Orleans area since moving away from Alabama. So, okay. Very cool. So, uh, I know, and you may have kind of touched on this, uh, when we were talking, uh, earlier, but, um, what, what sparked you to do this documentary? Like, how how did this come about? Was it just that you always wanted to, or was it that someone kind of presented the opportunity to you? Like, how how did this come about for you? So there had been several books that had been written prior to me coming up with this idea that shared a lot of the behind-the-scenes aspect of what it took to make the movie from shooting in Wyoming to eventually coming to Mobile. So, it, you know, it had been known it had been written about several times. There's also right. been featurettes that were also placed at the end of a lot of the uh, DVD releases. And then eventually the Blu-ray would come out, which was a big thing. So it was neat to see the movie uh, in that aspect. And But again, the one thing, it was as it was told every time from the perspective of a professional, of a either a talent or a technician or somebody who had been in Hollywood for most of their life had done several movies prior to Close Encounters or eventually would go on to become a big name since working in Close Encounters, you know, and, and they, it would just be another blip on their resume uh, or filmography. And so, you know, when, when you it's nice enough you know, to hear the the people talk about it because you kind of want to know. Well, yeah, because they're the ones who can really grab the dirt on what happens, you know, uh, uh, behind the camera as it's rolling. Right. And uh, you get to, you get to hear some juicy bits and pieces like that. But there's also that side of it that, well, what what was it like to be just someone who lived in that neighborhood? Right. Actually, you know, had a house right next door or across the street and had to live with that for, you know, weeks on end. And, you know, go to work normally, but come home like, oh, they're still shooting outside. I can't get to my right. house. Or, oh, you know, like I'm trying to leave for work and the film crew's setting up right, you know, in my, into my driveway. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. And, and that and that was something that was uh, I have a little bit of um, a taste of that when because <laughs> uh, living in Cleveland, they filmed a Christmas story here, oh, yes. uh, the exterior. <laughs> And the house is now a tourist attraction, and it's it's an amazing thing that they've done with it. It's it's absolutely incredible. Uh, but the cool thing was uh, one of the times I got to go there, uh, the neighbor who lived literally did live next door at the time and still lives next door uh, talked about what the experience was like having oh. people there, oh. and uh, he actually uh, was brought in as one of the pe- people that brought in the the leg lamp in the box. Oh, neat. No way. Yeah. The two men. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so he got <laughs> to be brought in for that, but he, he talks about like what it looked like and what they were doing. Cause they of course had to bring like fake snowing cause they were filming in like June or something like <laughs> I think at the time. So I, I completely, yeah, to hear from, that was one of the things I really liked with the, your documentary was that it was from the common 
man and woman who <laughs> yeah <laughs> who were impacted by this so well it's so funny a little side note that uh bob bob clark is that the director yes uh yeah. he's from alabama he's from birmingham oh okay yeah and uh you can hear him because he's he's the one he's naming his name is swedes or swede or sweet or yeah. something like that and he's talking about like you know you say you won that and that's him oh yeah there, yeah yeah you know yeah. giving that line uh yes. Jeremy mcgavin but um but uh <laughs> yeah so sorry i mean to go off right no no, we're um, good. That's that's what we do here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, yeah, love that movie. My kids love that movie. I'm glad you brought it up. And I would yeah. love to go see that house. I would give anything to see that house. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what that what you just described right there. It was what was burning inside of me as well was like, yeah. well, I kind of want to know more about this movie, this movie that I really do enjoy and has entertained me for so many years. And, uh, I, uh, and again, the other point you hit upon was the fact, yes, this is the common Joe Blow that had no business being on a film set. Right. And, and, you know, and, and the thing, the thing, Ryan, that I will mention a thousand times to people is the fact that it is memories like these that are the strongest because oh, they yeah. leave an indelible mark on a person because they didn't do this. Every day of their lives, they right. these were teachers and they were military, ex-military or current military at the time that didn't quite understand or kind of understand the ways of Hollywood in that sense, you know. But maybe I'll try it out as a lark, you know, right. in the summer of 1976. And, you know, it's just once it's over with, whether they were bored with it or whether, oh, I had a great time, it still left a mark. And that's the reason yeah. why you can remember, you know, some of your earliest classmates uh, when you first entered the education uh, uh, program or uh, what, you know, because you can't for the life of you remember what you had for lunch two days ago because right. you always have lunch technically. Right. See? And that's, that's a great analogy to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it honestly, it, it's a wonderful way to understand how the brain works. And so when you're doing a documentary like this, that's why those memories, that's why those ghosts were so sharp to these individuals. Yeah. That they weren't so faded and so forgetful. Uh, it was like I was talking to them there on the set in 1976. So that's one thing I will just, you know, just want to uh, put out there. Uh, as a prelude, you know, before we go into the uh, actual meat of the subject. And that's, yeah. you know, what really helps for anybody who's looking to do a documentary. Uh, it's, it's, you know, finding a, a, a unique aspect to it. Uh, and among other things, which I'll mention as well. Yeah. Well, and I will say, like, after watching this, um, and, and talking about what we were just talking about as far as just hearing from everyday people, and like you said, the mark that it leaves on them. I want one of these made for a lot of those classic movies now, like <laughs> like those vintage movies. Like I want one of these done for like Jaws, and I want one of these done for you know like you know even things like Goonies and things like I I want to hear from the people that lived in that town and like yeah what what it was like because it is a different perspective and it's such a cool perspective and and like you like you mentioned there there was highs and lows for different people like. It seemed like everyone was pretty much there. Everyone approached it differently. Mm -hmm. Everyone got something different out of it. And by the time it was done, everyone felt differently about it. And, and, and it was a whole spectrum. You know, it wasn't just like everyone felt this way. And by the end, they all felt this way. It was, it was all over the place. And I loved being able to hear that. So, um, so yeah, now like after seeing this, like I said, I feel like this 
this needs to be done with a, a lot of those classic movies that were filmed on a location in a town and stuff like that. So. Well, it's funny. You mentioned Jaws, and then in 2010, as we were getting towards the end of that year, I had already started uh, uh, my interview process in uh, June of 2010. What I would I would be working on the second unit of Green Lantern at the time. Okay. And what I would do is like knowing that we might be going late Friday deep into like early Saturday morning. I would still have a eight o'clock interview set up for uh, in Mobile, which is two hours away. Yeah. And for my first interview, one of many for that day and just have to say, oh, screw the sleep. You know, I'm going to do this because I, I really want to meet these people. But that's right. that's when the process started. But as we got to October of 2010, that's when I heard about a book coming out that was called Memories from Martha's Vineyard. It had, oh. and, and I can't remember the two um, authors uh, uh, right away. One of them, the title does sound familiar, though. I yes, think. that is an incredible uh, pictorial essay of absolutely what I was trying to accomplish with the documentary. And I was a little yeah. crestfallen at first because I'm like, sure. oh, great. Someone else is doing this. But I thought, well, wait a minute. They're doing a book, you know, and right. so and, and they're doing Jaws. So right. it's not like they're doing Close Encounters and doing a book on what I'm trying to do. It's No, no, it's not that. So I said, you know, that's OK. That Use this as, you know, inspiration, so to speak. Or to and, see that there is actually an audience for this. Exactly. Stuff, so. Absolutely so. And, you know, so that, that did come about. But it's by you mentioning that, I have to at least call out the fact that those two authors did an amazing job. And uh, it opened our eyes as Jaws fans to what more there was or the memories that those islanders actually did share. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, it was just and then and what kind of hardship it took to actually get the stinking movie made. And we we're lucky to even have anything as great. I mean, it's absolutely a masterpiece. But a lot of that absolutely was saved in editing. Uh, yeah. Verna Fields did an amazing job and she has to really be credited for, uh, for a lot of that. Uh, and unfortunately I think she, she took too much credit and that's why Spielberg didn't use her again. So right. <laughs> and it looks like at least one of the authors, I just see one name so far is, uh, Matt Taylor. Was yes. One of the authors. So, yes. Or at least the main author on it. So that is correct. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, like you said, it's, it, it's different. It's a different movie. It'd be one thing if you were doing a documentary that ended up being, you know, doing this for Jaws. Cause then it's like, okay, well, it is the documentary based on the book or is it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but you're doing a completely different movie, completely different medium. Uh, and there's room for all of it as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah. um, so I, and, and for what you were doing also, even if there had been a book that was done, to hear the actual voices in a documentary is so much more powerful. Um, yeah. So, um, so tell me with uh, – I'm trying to figure out where I want to go next with this. So uh, let's talk about uh, – you said obviously it was a long time building this and, and working on this, and it was kind of like – it seems like it was kind of like a pet project on the side to get these things done. What – with it being like that, what types of challenges did you face making the documentary itself? Well, for, first of all, I would say just is anybody alive? And then if they, if they are alive, how do I even start to get in contact with them? Right. You know, I mean, that was that was the craziest thing. And you, you kind of go through and I, I will reference those books that 
had been out there before I came on, came out with the idea. So you do your research first. Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to do a lot of digging and then you come up with names and you come up with dates. Bob Balaban had put out, he's the actor who played Laughlin in the mm-hmm. film, the translator for, uh, uh, for Francois Truffaut, uh,'s character, Lacombe. And, mm-hmm. uh, so basically, he put out a wonderful, like almost day to day, week by week kind of diary. Uh, some of it a little mundane, some of it just incredible for the, the stories that he told. And that was an incredible record. Yeah. Uh, uh, that actually that got published and to the point to where Richard Dreyfus himself said, I should have put out a diary. <laughs> I, I should have written something like this, but he didn't. He was too busy, right. you know, living it up. Sure. And, um, and, and and I don't blame you for it because you know he hit he hit such a you know a peak of stardom right after Jaws that oh yeah he couldn't do any wrong quite honestly uh, but uh, so I did my research in that I didn't want to go into it cold and I wanted to also confirm or deny anything that had been written before or talked about before by anybody who I thought might be there so again it's going back to where do you start. And there were a couple of individuals in Mobile that I had heard that were associated. Uh, my uh, naval ROTC professor, um, uh, Commander Euler, he was one of those people that I always heard about, uh, was in, in it in some capacity or tried out for it, but just didn't quite know. My geometry teacher uh, was also part of it. And you have to understand they were all of that age when I was going to high school. That they were of that age, that that would have been pretty much in their prime, and sure. it's neat to kind of hear that even in the early '90s when I was going uh, to Davidson High School at the time, and mm-hmm. it's those little bits of information kind of stuck with me, and I would always go back and and you know just rediscover what it was I was holding on to as far as why why should I be remembering this and oh that's great maybe that'll lead me to somebody else so it yeah so go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, so do you think it was, uh, in this kind of, <laughs> um, stupid question, but like, do you think it was a huge advantage that you were from that area that it made it a little bit easier than maybe someone from outside the area to, to get in contact with people and learn, you know, who to reach out to and who to contact? I would agree with you there. Even, even though it was a small amount of people that I, I started off with. Sure. So one lead, just like a detective will lead to one, if not possibly two more leads. And then those two leads themselves are going to be maybe one a piece, if not maybe two more pieces. So exponentially, you see it start to grow like that. Sure. And it is, there was a lot of cold calling. And it was a lot of, you know, you know, I was scared at times about, was I going to like upset somebody? Was sure. I going to, you know, call them at dinner time? You know, which of course I didn't try to, you know, Sure. I tried to schedule my calls appropriately, but at the same time, uh, I, w- I wanted to be pretty darn sure I was calling that right individual. Uh, and then, of course, making sure that I had uh, indeed uh, that right uh, information uh, in regards to who it was I was trying to contact. And a lot of that came from newspaper clippings. So, you know, I, I would go to the library there in uh, Mobile and look, uh, try to s- research any kind of article that was written in that entire period from May 31st of 1976 to September 2nd of 1976 gotcha. and anything and there was a lot written about it 
And you could see where they would slip people's names in. Sure. There, everywhere. It was incredible. It really dominated a lot of what was going on. And so I was able to talk to civic-minded individuals, those um, you know, uh, elected individuals in the uh, city government. Uh, so I got to see it from that standpoint. I got to see it from those people who were part of the theater co- community at the time because that's what they pulled a lot of people from there. Uh, a lot of the teachers, uh, whether they – and it's so funny because there's a lot of ROTC individuals and a lot of you know just uh, uh, regular teachers in the school system that they pulled because they're not working during the summer. What a great you know uh, talent pool. And um, so it was and then construction people who were, you know, basically, well, I I got I'm living from job to job. And, oh, this is a construction job going on at uh, Berkeley Air Force Base. Not quite sure what it is, but I'll it pays, you know, two dollars and seventy eight cents an hour. I'm there. It's minimum wage. So it was it was just something that it it drew from several different disciplines as far as those who were involved yet not one of them could qualify you know to be uh, in the film industry by by many standards and that's what's so brilliant about it. i love that i i would yeah. much rather hear you know the a story told by someone who is not biased towards right. you know the theme so they're not looking to promote something and all that type of stuff where it's just yeah like they have there's an ulterior agenda to them telling you their story or something like that. They're just telling you their story. That's right. Part of their life. So correct. Yeah. Um, so not, of course not asking for any, any names to be divulged, but, um, (laughs) was, were, did you run into very many people that just didn't want to talk about it? It seems like you talked to a lot of people and that's why it seems like, it seems like you almost didn't get any no's from people, but I'm sure you (laughs) did. Yeah. I mean, and as you, figured correctly there were a couple individuals and not because it brought up any bad memories but i think because maybe they didn't have much to tell and they were quite cordial about it they were never slamming the phone back onto the cradle in my face and then um there were there were a couple there was a couple weird type of things that occurred uh like like your story doesn't mesh I think he's ah, trying to <laughs> embellish it a little bit or yeah, something. Yeah, because what we did, uh, me and the two other uh, individuals that were well, – I should say one other individual that was helping me out at the time, Barry Stedman. We got on to the local Fox uh, affiliate, and uh, we were we were able to be interviewed in 2010. Mm-hmm. So we got to kind of throw that out there to say we know how important this was to Mobile. And therefore, if you have any – idea or any recollection or any connection let's say you have an individual that was part of it but has passed on unfortunately and yet you're a family member share with us here's my address contact me and share with me anything that you feel may be appropriate for this documentary and that was a huge net that we cast out into the waters and it was incredible uh the feedback that we got some one in particular that you saw in the dark documentary was about this gentleman's mother that was seen in a deleted sequence that he had only heard his mother talk about for many years. And he, I still have the email to this day. And reading that just blew up in my face. The fact that he didn't get to see this scene that his mother referenced yes. all those years until after she had passed away and yeah. his, his own children 
hadn't really uh, – some of them had not seen his murder right. until that uh, time that they released that deleted clip from that scene in a subsequently released DVD format. Yeah, and I actually had that specific thing noted here that I wanted to mention, so I'm glad you brought it up because – that was one of the most touching moments in your documentary. That was, that was incredible, right? I mean, seriously. I had chills. I had literally had chills hearing it from the guy because you could almost, he didn't get choked up, but you could almost hear him getting <laughs> right. choked up. Right. Um, but yeah, the, he said he had the movie for, I think he said he, he got a copy of it. He just never sat down and watched it. And one day he's, he happened to notice on there that mentioned deleted scenes and he wondered if one of his deleted scenes was in there. Yes. And here he comes across this deleted scene of his mother. Yes. And he called his siblings and like it, that was one of the moments in the documentary that just really gave me goosebumps and I got a little choked up because I was like, I can't even imagine what that would be like oh, to have that. Isn't that something? I mean, and I, I yeah. kid you not, that's how it, came across to me first was in an email like that based upon our appearance on that little uh, Fox 10 morning show. And uh, it there were several others. And, there, and going back to your uh, notice of how many people I might have talked to, well, it was well over 70 that I got to talk to. Not yeah. all of them are in the documentary because you have to call a certain yeah. amount uh, of individuals out you know, uh, of, of your what you thought would be like, I'm going to cram everybody in here, but you just right. can't do that. And you have to say, well, you repeated stories and absolutely. things like that. I'm sure. So absolutely. yeah. And you know, and you want, you really want the best of the best and you want everything to click, but you also want to tell it from a truthful standpoint. Uh, that was the one thing I just didn't want to put words in anybody's mouth or, you know, misrepresent anybody. That was my biggest fear about like, I sure hope these people are going to be happy the way that they're seen. Because yeah. I would be doing them a horrible injustice if they came out looking or sounding, you know, not what they were represented as, as I was sitting there with them face to face and asking these questions. And sure. then everybody, yeah, came out, you know, uh, with a, with a very happy attitude. And uh, again, no, maybe one person and then said no. Well, there's another weirdo, a couple of weirdos. I just like, no. I'm not I don't want UFO stories. You misunderstood me. But also at the same time, I don't want your what you think may have happened with a family member. And then one individual uh, unfortunately passed away before I got to talk to them. So I uh. knew it was starting to become and I hate to use this analogy, but um, I understand the importance of, say, what the Shoah Foundation is doing or recording yeah. the memories of World War Two veterans now sure. because you don't have all the time in the world. Right. You know, and I'm yeah. glad that I got to do this uh, earlier in my life uh, because, well, one, it's, it's out of the way now. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm a father of five children, so I don't have that kind of time now to do that. Sure. Uh, but uh, then it was just it was a perfect time to squeeze yeah. it all in. Yeah. And it's in uh, to your to your point there, it's like you get to kind of capture these moments for for the town and, and for those people to so that it it can live on beyond them um, yeah. and everything. So that's awesome. Now, um, one of the things I also noticed, and this is something I really loved that you did, and this kind of ties into talking to all those people. Well, first, before I get into that, mm -hmm. so uh, going into like how you said you had to kind of call it down and everything else. Do you have a rough idea of how many, cause the, the, the documentary is a little over about an hour and a half ish. Right. Um, how, do you have a rough idea of how many hours of actual material you, you had to work from to bring it down to that amount? Yeah, I believe we had, uh, binned about, I want to say between nine and 10 hours, uh, worth of footage, which means I really recorded about 30, 
to 45 minutes, I would say, was was the time frame. I never tried to like just sit there and beat these people to death. There were a sure. couple of individuals that I literally wanted to spend a little bit more time with than normal. But at the same time, thinking like it would be it would be so horrible. Even I let the smallest individual or that is to say the, the individual with the smallest role or uh, yeah. you know position on the the set go without me at least hearing what they had to say, because there could have been some kernel of uh, you know, gold up in there that I would have liked to have heard. And yeah. uh, so I gave everybody the, that kind of time and uh, really tried to make it work. I think the first edit that I had, I just made this huge like chef salad, large chef sure. salad of, you know, what I what I wanted. And it was about three and a half hours. And I knew I was going to it was like basically bringing in the the block of marble. And yeah. then as Michelangelo tried to find the David inside of this block of marble. And, and chip uh, away at it and, exactly. and bring it down to a basic form, and then you really get into the detail. Yeah, that's yeah. really it's exactly. And I think that's what the, some of the professionals must have to do, you know, to, oh, yeah. to get through this. Because otherwise, I didn't know how else I was going to do it. Right. Well, and I will mention uh, in a little while. I'll, I'll mention one individual that I'm. I, I feel like you would have gotten probably about <laughs> five hours of material from this one person, and, and okay. I'm sure you know who I'm referring to. But yeah. we'll, we'll we'll save her for a little bit later. <laughs> yeah. Um. But uh. So one thing that's really interesting about that is the fact that you did have to call things down because in the documentary itself, you have a lot of people talking about how their parts were not used for the movie, too. Yes. So it's I knew that obviously you had a lot of material that you had to edit out as well uh, to, to make it as concise as you could and, and still capture everything. But then I'm thinking... Wow, these are people also talking about how they did film something and never saw it on the screen. <laughs> so it's like it's a little bit of irony going on there. And and that was the thing with Spielberg because he would do that quite often. Yeah, I um, found that out. <laughs> I mean, and it's not just close encounters, but he had to right. really hone his talent. I would say uh, during Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah, uh, he had it was really make or break time. And for him to, you know, that was a grandiose film uh, as it was laid out for him with a production schedule that lasted X many a days and all those different locations, those different countries he had to go to and, uh, and, and everything that was required of him from stunts and uh, special effects, uh, you know, not visual effects, but special effects practically had to happen. Yeah. And uh, for him to come under budget, come under schedule as yeah. well, you knew. He had learned his lessons from Jaws, from Close Encounters, from yeah. 1941, you yeah. see. And all those were basically his classroom. And yeah. he still made some wonderful films. I mean, I, I'm i sorry. I still enjoy 1941 It's it, from sure. a comedic standpoint. But, oh, yeah. you know, it's not groundbreaking as far as like, this is great Steven Spielberg yeah. fair. I love it. You know, no, it's just it's funny to see a cast of thousands, basically. Right. And uh, but. The hardship that is endured between Jaws and Close Encounters, we have, we have to understand that Close Encounters was shot the way that it was because of Jaws. Jaws was a nightmare because it was in open water. Right. Uh, Spielberg could not control the environment. He could not control the media. When they took a picture of Bruce the Shark underneath that tarp, Newsweek put it on the front cover before it yeah. ever came out on uh, the screen. So he was livid. He was very yeah. upset about that. So that's why Close Encounters was such a hush, hush movie. Very close little. Set, yeah. Absolutely close set, especially when it comes to the hangar. Very close set. And the thing is that he could control 
the weather when when it comes to being inside of a hangar with yeah. that much open space the problem you run into is extreme heat obviously you do not yeah. ac the entire area and, and right. on top of that as you saw in the documentary you're looking at a lot of uh, tropical storms or tempests that can occur in hot yeah. southern weather in midday as uh, they experienced there in uh, july of that year yeah and then, uh, and even though it was a closed set, as people will find the documentary, people still found ways to to <laughs> get things that they wanted. Yeah. But I will say, because of the way the people seemed to revere what they were doing, they still didn't leak that stuff out. Isn't that incredible? I only saw one National Enquirer uh, article in reference to that, and it came out, I think, in either late '77 or uh, early '78. And it only, quite honestly, there was only one uh, on-set image that I had seen uh, yeah. in this article. The other one was of a, a security guard standing around the, the the Box Canyon set after filming had already taken place, after things were starting to be taken down. It was just yeah. a bunch of fiberglass rocks all around, and it was kind of like a, an image that was taken well after they had wrapped in September. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the one – leaked image is actually of a deleted scene that takes place uh, when Roy goes to go check out a down power line before he yeah. goes on that wild goose chase and uh, you know at the railroad track so uh, the uh, railroad crossing excuse me so the thing is that yes to to their credit they really uh, have buttoned their lips and really kept a tight seal on what it was they were doing, even though they took those clandestine photographs. There's a group of three yeah. individuals. I, I was able to speak to one, and uh, you know, I didn't get to speak. There was another one. I think I have an idea who it was, but he really won't tell me anything. It's like, <laughs> don't worry, bro. You're not going to get in trouble. Right, right. But but the the photographs were copied, and they were distributed amongst um, other members there. And even by, you know, multiplying it as many times as they did, it still didn't leak out. That's the craziest yeah, thing. That's crazy. Cause, you know, the, the, the phrase is always like, uh, if, if you tell a secret to, if two people know a secret, it's no longer <laughs> a secret, you know? Yeah. So, and usually stuff gets out because of that. Um, well, yeah, so, yeah, Benjamin Franklin said, if three, uh, three men can keep a secret, if two are dead. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, that leads into what I was going to ask you about before was the photos. So one of the things you did in the in the documentary that I absolutely loved was yes, we got to see the people, we got to see them talk and 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 really kind of tell their story. But there's several moments throughout the documentary that while they're talking and telling their stories, we're seeing photos from that period or that set or what was going on and or like the uh, the picnics that they had and things like that. Yeah. Were those, it seemed this way, but were all of those photos from people in the town or were some of those photos from like other sources as well? As well? So, yeah, uh, again, wanting to be as truthful as possible when making a documentary and not wanting to, I think the only thing is you saw a couple of uh, reenactments. Sure. And I was a little reticent to even put those in because I didn't really want to just inundate the entire documentary with reenactments. Sure. But uh, just for to keep it from just being a talking head all the time and yeah. maybe not seeing another you know period photograph. Yes, those photographs that you do see are all authentic 
to the individuals that they uh, – well, I can't say that they all come from the same sources as, as those that are speaking, but they did sure. come from – uh, everybody that I spoke with would say, oh, look, take a look at this photo album or take a look at these images that we took uh, right. that we were allowed to take. Because if it didn't include the hanger, they were allowed to take as many images as they possibly could. So, yeah. you know, uh, the anyone in the neighborhood could take a picture. I mean, you could literally walk on set and start talking to an electrician or a grip, you know, yeah. and just say, hey, buddy, what are y'all shooting today? You know, yeah. or. Uh, and then, oh, can I take your picture? Sure, kid, leave me alone, you know. But they would, yeah. that's how it was. It was just kind of like in and out. No one, there was no real security. Uh, but yeah. that was the only thing that there was, it was such high, uh, security in the aspect of what, the parameter around the hangar that anything outside of that, you could totally take a photographic, uh, uh, image of. And then, of course, those were then presented to me without even actually trying to ask. For yeah. it. It's just people would be like, hey, check this out or, hey, here's my badge that I was wearing and yeah. those technicians uh, on the set. And uh, I was about to throw it out. But do you want it? So I was like, that's amazing. Sure. Hey, here's a call sheet. You want one of these call sheets? I was about to throw it out, too. Like, yeah, I'll take a call. Heck sheet. Yeah. You yeah. <laughs> now you got more names. <laughs> now you can, Exactly. So that's how that the sources, you know, keep. It, yeah. the, the references and the, the, the information, it keeps kind of rolling along. And yes, I can corroborate this story with what I see written down on this piece of paper that should have been thrown away years ago. Uh, it's just incredible uh, how these people opened up to me. Well, and I, and I will say, like, that's, uh, and, and I mean this very sincerely, that's what makes this documentary for me rewatchable. Oh, really? Uh, because. I loved hearing all the stories and, and it's great to always go back and, and listen to the stories again. Wow. But really what makes me want to go back is seeing these, like now that I've heard their stories, I can really pay attention to the photos and the, and the call sheets and all that type of stuff and really see stuff that no one's really seen before. Well, um, you know, other than people in that town. So, well, uh, exactly. You know, because those are things that are just privy to the, um, the, the crew. And, and, yeah. and for anybody who's, you know, uh, an extra that may, you know, need a call sheet to know when their call time is for the next day. But, you know, really it's only crew. We still get them today, you know, uh, just to show us like when I, oh, I got a pre-call for 30 minutes, to, you know, tomorrow. So, okay. Right. And, and where do I need to park, you know, before we start shooting? Okay. Here's my, so that's what I use a call sheet for. And then usually it just gets thrown away at the end of the day. Yeah. The yeah. thing is with, uh, you know, these individuals, they, I guess kept it as a memento. Uh, all yeah. those years. And then, of course, one example is the stinking story of the ice cream. And there it is yeah. on the call sheet. You know, it's like, you know, I, I I could not have written this better. This is literally uh, it, it was meant to be. It was meant to be told. Yeah. And yeah, that was hilarious. <laughs> it, so it, you guys need to go and check out this documentary because there's so many stories like what he's referencing. And I don't want to spoil that at all. <laughs> but I will say there's a lot of amazing, hilarious stories like that, the ice cream story that's just like, wow, that was, you'd never know. I, you know, it just blows my mind, uh, you know, weird, you know, and I don't believe in coincidence, but, uh, you know, I, I do like the fact that it kind of found me and that's, it was meant to, like I said, meant to be told and it's really, it, it's these people's stories, what it's about. Yeah, and that's what yeah. the whole, the whole title is basically a line from the movie when Richard Dreyfus is being grilled, you know, by Lacombe and Laughlin in that little room, 
uh, he he asked the question three times, you know, timid at first about who are you people until at the very end, he's basically pounding his fist on the table saying, you know, who are you people? Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, and it, it that's how it kind of escalated for me, because there was just so much. It starts off very timid. It starts off very small with the sources that you have and the resources, especially like, how am I going to pay for this? How do I yeah. even get this done? Uh, you know, sure. Okay. I'll work in the film industry, but that doesn't entitle me to anything, any equipment. Right. It doesn't entitle me to like, I'm Jonathan Robinson, second AC. What the heck is that? Who cares? You know? <laughs> so the thing is like, that doesn't, I think with anything that anybody does, it's all about that ambition. And I think you're going to find a way, especially like with you and yeah. you know, your project right now, yeah. you're going to find a way, yeah. you're, you know, and it, it, it may not be, the orthodox way of how things are done but you're determined you're hungry and you want to see your project through ryan i mean that's how it's going to get done absolutely and i've told people i'm like i not only have a plan b i have a plan c d and e uh and it it may be just like yours where it's it might take me 10 years to get there but i'm going to get there so absolutely and that should never be discouragement when it said well it's not coming out tomorrow boo-hoo you know we're we're still young men you know still have that time as long as we don't let that flame burn out. You know what I'm saying? That yeah. You and I are the exact same age. You mentioned you were 43. I'm 43 also. Uh, I'm actually turning 44 tomorrow. Oh, uh, so, <laughs> well, <laughs> so, happy birthday. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, we're, you and I are the exact same generation, exact same age and everything. So That's awesome. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so another one of the stories that I never knew uh, at all, but it was a really cool, uh, cool story in there was about the football game yeah, and how like tensions just rose up on, on the set between uh, the film crew and the, um, and the townspeople and almost built up an animosity. And then all of a sudden they do this football game and they beat the crap out of each other to put it bluntly (laughs) and they they even talk about how like the next day yeah they were sore and bruised but it seemed like it lifted their spirits and i'm kind of curious like um did because it seemed like just a few people kind of told that story did you hear a lot of that and then also with your experience doing film things have you have you had that type of experience uh, uh where something outside of the actual filming was done to kind of raise people's spirits and stuff well, uh, the first part of the uh, question, I had heard that from a couple of individuals, uh, that I had interviewed. And the one, uh, uh I guess proponent of it was the, the, the PA in there, uh, uh, Steve Mayfield. And uh, that's who I'd originally heard it from because he was the ex, you know, football player, you know, semi pro kind of, uh, Alabama football player. Uh, that had kind of made that his part of his early life before he kind of wrecked his body later on. But the, um, it was kind of his idea to break the ice, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, I think that the idea was that the movie should have been wrapped around, I thought the beginning of August sometime. And you see this constantly repeated in Bob Balaban's diary about like, well, we're not wrapping today. Maybe next week, I think is what we're hearing. And it was all rumor. Of course, they would push it and push it, and the budget would get pushed and pushed. And, uh, uh, you know, it was just Julia Phillips was about to just kill people. She she didn't like Vilmos Zygmunt, the uh, cinematographer. 
She blamed mm-hmm. all the problems on him. She also thought that, you know, Stephen was too much of a, you know, child and needed to really be reared in, but she couldn't put too much stress on him. And so she found other individuals to sink her claws into. And I hate that because, you know, she was battling a, a really bad habit at the time. And, uh, you know, so that really makes people not who they are really, sure. you know. And so the, the movie had all these problems and extras just didn't being they didn't like being treated like cattle and they didn't like being in the hot circumstances of the of the uh, hangar set and the way that they were, because those overalls were just awful in the middle of yeah. August, oh. you know, of, oh, yeah. in Mobile. So but uh, they. uh so they had a lot that they endured, and they weren't getting paid a lot. Like I said, it was like two, it was either two seventy three or two seventy eight an hour, if I remember correctly, because I'd seen pay stubs. Uh, the name of the production company was the Rock Company, and uh, so they, you're not making a ton of money, even if it is nineteen seventy six. And uh, so that was a way to kind, of, and the ice cream incident didn't help either. You know sure. what I'm saying? It's like, oh, you're a bunch of elitists, is what you're telling me. You know, your crew, and you guys think that you're all you know, these uppity ups and we're just these common plebeian, you know, uh, extras. And I think that there was that caste system that was created and probably always had been maybe even maybe still is today. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but, um, anyway, uh, that was nice that they could arrange that and have that, uh, that kegger as well, you know, on a Sunday, you know, (laughs) uh, during that time. And uh, but to answer your second part of your question, uh, the only thing that I know that we ever have, I mean, there are, yes, there some some departments, hair and makeup, maybe uh, the art department, maybe the grips or whatever might have like a crawfish uh, boil or something, you know, something that's local and regional to New Orleans that you know a lot of New Orleanians tend to do because New sure. Orleanians like to party and they do like oh, yeah. to have an excuse to drink for whatever. You know, reason it is. And so I do see those things from time to time, even before a rap party occurs so that, okay. you know, when you have a rap party at the, the end of the show, technically, uh, then that's when everybody can kind of, you know, loosen their tie and drop their pants if they want to. But, you know, and, and that that's always been traditional in that respect. But I have seen things where like, hey, July the fourth weekend's coming up, let's uh you know have a crawfish boil or something. Cool. You know, something like that. It it yeah. does occur, but not you know, it, it does I think like one of the extras say in the documentary, it does become a drudge and it does become a grind, so to speak. Yeah. You know, because it is work. It's still work sure. that has to be done. It's yeah. it's big business. Yeah. And that's like one of the things uh my wife had uh someone that uh, a family member that worked in special effects and doing like the CGI type stuff and mm-hmm. everything else. And we got to go out and visit him. Mm-hmm. And for us who are the outsiders and love movies and film, especially myself, um, uh, to be there and see him working on something was just, you know, my mouth just dropped open and was amazed and everything else. But to him, it it's his job. It's his everyday job. And he even said, he's like, yeah, it's really cool sometimes, you know, the stuff that you're working on and everything else, but he says, but everything becomes a job at some point. It does. Uh, so he says, while I do try to enjoy whatever I'm working on, he says, there are days you come in and you're like, I don't want to go into work today. <laughs> right. That is <laughs> so, correct. Yeah. Um, so I think I would be remiss uh, since uh, 
since she was such a character. Uh, <laughs> my, uh, and I don't know if you felt the same way, but she's, stood out and my guess is that a third of the filming that you had was of her. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's, uh, Ms. uh, Mary Gaffrey. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a hoot. Uh, yeah. and I'm just curious, like, um, cause she seems like the lady that you would go over to just drop her mail off to her. And that three hours later, you're coming back, you know, just she, cause she just talked your ear off after that. Um, Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she seemed like such a sweetheart. Mm-hmm. Um, was her doing like it? It seemed like she just embodied, like loved being a part of that movie. Did she? Did you kind of get the same feel? Like she just loved being part of this documentary as well. I think so too. I mean, I, I still stay in touch with her today. She's in her nineties at this point, yeah. Yeah. and uh, she's uh, just as vibrant as ever. Uh, the fact that you know she wasn't one of those typical. Mobilian. She wasn't born and raised in right. that, that old money sense of, you know, how a lot of mobilians tend to uh, carry themselves, especially in individuals um, of, a, of a later age. But uh, being from New York and kind of having that, you know, she's got spunk to her. You know what I'm yes. saying? So she's yes. going to she had that she was imbued with that before she came down to the south. Yeah. And uh, then being part of that theater community as yeah. well. She's a ham. Oh you yeah, know, she's absolutely. That's the, what she was created for, quite honestly. Right. And I'm right. glad because that is that is the same individual that people point out time after time that you could sit down there and have a conversation with her and feel like you've known her for ages. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, I I loved her, and uh, uh, and it's, it is that loud person. I mean, and we meet a lot of people over and over again through through the documentary. They they pop up here and there and everything else. Um, and they give some amazing information, some great stories, but she is definitely uh, the standout for me. Where it's, and I think she would be for a lot of people. Um, and and she she reveled in being in that in that movie and being a part of the whole thing. Like she, yes, yes. I, I love I loved when she talked about how she got to turn people away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they gave her some sort of satisfaction, yeah, you know, because yes. of some people that had done her wrong at one point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know the. But that was one of those individuals, uh, names that kind of kept coming up even early on, but well before I spoke with her. And, uh, she had been, she even continued to be part of the film making, uh, scene in the South along the Gulf Coast there. She, uh, eventually went straight on in, um, I want to say it was the summer of 77 when they shot Jaws 2 over in the Pensacola, uh, the Fort Walton uh, area. So they didn't shoot Jaws again up north. They decided because the weather was so cruddy up there, yeah. they're going to shoot it in the, uh, the Gulf waters. So they basically had that whole area, and then they brought those same close encounters, a lot of close encounters uh, uh, alumni uh, into uh, that movie. Uh, and uh, you know, it was only less than a year later when they, you know, so it was kind of old hat for them at that point. Yeah. And but Mary Gaffney's one of those few. That continued to work in the film industry until the nineties and then wow. kind of got jaded by it. The, the one big thing that I did not address, I didn't want to start a lot of drama. I, there, you know, there were, there were, uh, there were stories about drugs and there were stories about, sure. you know, things that do happen because that's just the time period and, and sure. I'm not trying to be a prude about it. I just didn't want to. That wasn't what you were there to highlight. No, exactly not. And one of the stories that kind of came about with Mary was the fact that if you notice in the, um, the film credits. She's known as uh, Mary Gaffrey. 
and uh, she is uh, her name's Mary Gaffney, and so yeah. they deliberately misspelled her name because they didn't want to, I guess, pay resid- uh, residuals to her to have her join SAG. Uh, and so that's one way to get around it. And I didn't. I asked her. I said, "Do you want me to mention this in the documentary? Do you feel like it's something that you know I should talk about and maybe bring up?" And she's like, "No, I just, I'm, I'll just be humble about it. I don't, you know, there's, I don't think there's anything I can do." And I still feel bad about that. Sure. Of, yeah. Yeah. You know, she poured her sweat and blood into it. You know, as yeah. a, as you see, as a location assistant to Sherry Rhodes. Yeah. Yep. And she's the one, you know, who said, well, look, I, I know a bunch of locals and maybe the caliber of individuals you're looking for because yeah. I have that connection. Yeah. And, you know, she'd go out there and she'd get them. And, you know, cause what is Sherry Rhodes going to do? Go, you know, if she had to do it herself, I'm not saying right. she wasn't able to because she was sure. you know, very smart. Just would have been a lot tougher. It would have because what you want to do is you want to employ those people who already know the natives, so to speak, yes. you know, yeah. and that's what, that's why you need a liaison like that. And that's what Mary Gaffney was, uh, you know, uh, to that casting department uh, when it came to all those different individuals that they needed. And one, you know, at one sitting, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, especially when it came to the hangar, like right? up to 400 individuals that eventually would dwindle down to about maybe a little over 100 because people just started slipping away. Like, this is yeah. boring. I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but Mary Gaffney, yes, plays a vital role. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, so it, it was really cool kind of seeing like the documentary also kind of followed the flow of the movies, you know, this, mm. the scenes and everything else, which I really appreciated that also because it was kind of like, okay, I remember that in the movie. I remember that in the movie. Yeah. Thank and you. it kind of follows that. And then, uh, one other thing you did in the documentary that I appreciated and, and you kind of meant, uh, it was, a, it seems like a good segue because you mentioned the, the credits and everything else is, uh, you made the credits a bit fun. Oh, yeah. uh, which I appreciate that. I, there's, I like it when, uh, when a creator, uh, wants me to stay to the very end and gives me a reason to stay to the very end. So you, <laughs> you threw in extra like little, uh, blooper videos and things like that. But then also I even noticed, uh, which pay attention to this stuff. They, there's little things like, uh, casting and then it's like, no, seriously, are you kidding me? And so like, cause the, the listing kept going on with names and oh, stuff that, like that. Oh, that, yeah, that someone, I don't, I forgot who did that, but, uh, that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I said, well, you know, since you're doing the credits for me, sure. You, you put in what you want and don't be yeah. too goofy with it. But, uh, yeah, I, I did. Yeah. I, I'd forgotten <laughs> about that aspect. You can, you actually, if you, if you want to know what I look like, that's me. Uh, getting that poster signed because I did, I had a poster, uh, uh, that I had everyone that I came uh, across sign just in case. Yeah. And, yeah. and what's funny is I, um, I worked on the remake of, uh, uh Magnificent Seven back in 2015. We shot it in Jackson, Louisiana. And, which is uh, a fantastic movie, by the way. No, it was, good lord, it was hard. I mean, it was just, uh, I don't know. I, I, Whew. Well, thank you for saying so because of- yeah, no, I I, re- I went into that movie with I will say I went because I'm not a huge Western person, but there's certain well, westerns that I absolutely love. Yeah, and that was one that I went in with like, okay, the cast seems pretty good. I'm going to go check this out, and uh, yeah, that 
it was phenomenal. I absolutely loved it when I walked out of there. So I, I, I you know, the scale at which they shot it, you know, is incredible. We eventually had to go uh, out to uh, New Mexico and finish up some of the more practical locations because, you know, Louisiana doesn't look like that. There's no sure. way you're going to get those that mountain range like that. So you, you have to go out there and shoot those vista, uh, vistas like that and sure. uh, basically uh, replicate that skyline later on for other things that were shot in Louisiana. But the the thing was there was a you know it was a slew of stuntmen as you can imagine you know, especially oh, yeah. at the charge at the very end where they're you know attacking yeah. the town but there was one individual that I heard and that was Buddy Joe Hooker and Buddy Joe Hooker obviously had been the stunt coordinator on Close Encounters I was like yeah I gotta I gotta have this I I gotta <laughs> like you know just you know choke it up and go s- talk to this man and I'm expecting right. like this is gonna be a bigger than life individual turns out. He's a little over five feet tall. He's uh, just as sweet as can be. But I was, you know, enamored by, you know, his presence and everything. I'm like, sure. you don't know me, brother. And what I'm about to tell you is going to be the most goofy thing you probably heard in a long time. But I explained who I was, why I was going to ask him what I wanted to ask him. And yeah. he's like, absolutely, man. And it was neat to get his autograph on that. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, the same feeling I had. I had worked on a another uh, movie um, that had Terry Leonard as a stuntman. And I, I couldn't believe he was still working. But Terry Leonard is the uh, stuntman who is in Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. who is the one who is seen crawling underneath the truck as it's rolling along. Oh, yeah. And okay. he's also the driver, the, the first Nazi driver that gets knocked out by Harrison. Yeah. yeah, so he's he's got two bits parts actually, uh, he and he also overtakes the truck on the horse as well. So that is Terry okay. Leonard, uh, who actually does the stunt from horse to uh, the truck. And then I, nice. I, mean, I, it was the same kind of feeling I had with Buddy Joe Hooker that I had with Terry Leonard. That you know, it's just man, these guys are part of your childhood, and you're yeah. sitting there talking to them, and they will allow you to have that time to you know, yeah. and 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 tell you stories that were unsolicited you know yeah. it was like thanks man that was like icing on the cake yeah well and i i know that feeling from a different perspective with uh being as deep into comics as i am and mm-hmm. why i got into podcasting and started going to conventions and everything else is to be able to sit sometimes with uh people like shannon and robert and brian Shear and and things like that you know i go to a convention i'll have dinner with them and you just hear stories that you you don't repeat on the air uh but <laughs> But you, you're just like, wow, like it's, it's kind of like some of them are interesting, some of them are hilarious, and some of them you're like, I would never guess that about that person. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's, it's a very, uh, to your point, like something like that, and I've mentioned this on the show before, it's a very surreal experience. You just, it is, you can't believe you're there talking to this person and they're telling you these things and, and stuff. Uh, so it, it definitely, you definitely re- recognize it as a blessing at that moment. It, it is. And it's, uh, again, to go back more surreal than anything else because of the fact that, uh, uh into 2017, uh, worked on a comedy with Chevy Chase and Richard Dreyfus. Now, mm. what are the chances of that happening? Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that just, blew my mind and again that was i was scared to death and like sure i want to approach this man and the first ad was telling me like jonathan you you got to tell him about your documentary i'll i'll even you know warm him up if you want me to right 
I'm like, right. would you mind? Because that's right. would help, if, you know, especially since production is okay with it. You know what I'm saying? Sure, sure. And it was neat going to him. And now here's the thing: I don't think he ever watched it. I don't. I just. I just don't think he did. And yeah. you know, I presented the DVD to him. I explained who I was. He entertained me for a little bit because Richard Dreyfus loves to talk. He really sure. loves to talk, and he loves history. And he, you know, I, I feel like I could, I could have a long you know, enjoyable dinner with him if I ever had that opportunity. But I just think that, you know, he had other things going on. And I don't know if he's even seen it to this day. If he has, he probably chuckled and that was it. But um, I I, I like And that's enough. Yeah, (laughs) the audience that I had with him was great, you know, just for that little time. Then I had to go back to being professional, you know, slating for the camera and all that. I just had to kind of put that aside and, you know, not, you know, gush all the time. Yeah. Well, it's like for me, one of the uh, I've mentioned this on the show in the past was getting to meet Stan Lee when he yeah he wa- he walked by me in the airport. I said, wow. Stan. He turned to me. I shook his hand. I just said, <laughs> I wanted to thank you for everything you ever done. I'm a huge comic book fan. He's like, Oh, you know, you're very welcome. And oh. he says, It's nice to meet you. He says, I can't stay. And I was like, I totally understand. He moved on, oh. and that's it. I have no photo evidence of it. I have nothing else other than that I know I talked to him for a moment and I shook his hand, and that yeah. was that's enough for me to right die a happy man knowing that so absolutely um so uh so yeah i will say for for our listeners they uh i would say watch this from beginning to end uh and and yeah there's those blooper moments that make it worth watching through the credits there's the little credit things which i think work perfectly with the bloopers so i i I like the fact that you let somebody kind of have a little bit of fun with it because it made the credits interesting which i think i feel like a lot of times people the only people that watch the credits are those that you know, want to see family members and everything else that worked on it a lot mm-hmm. of times, uh, or they want to hear the music or something like that, which, by the way, h- hilarious and awesome that there was a song. Uh, <laughs> I assume ex- it existed before this documentary. Like, it it uh, did, because the, the guy did not make it for me or anything like that. But he okay. just said, he mentioned uh, that you know he had, uh, because he was a mu- musician, uh, in his former life, basically, he just basically said that uh, I had this already prearranged. And do you want to use this for your document? And like, if you're allowing me to, I'm happy yeah. to do it. Yeah, and and for for listeners, it's, it's a song about the making of Close Encounters in Mobile. So it's uh, <laughs> it, it's a song about basically about the uh, what the documentary is about. So um, uh, so that was that was entertaining as well, and. Uh, so let people know where they can find this at. Absolutely. Uh, if any of the uh, subs- uh, audience members have Amazon, uh, then you can just do a search for yeah. "Who Are You People." Uh, simple as that. Uh, in the doc- in the documentary section of uh, Amazon, there that should pop up immediately. Yeah, uh, it uh, does. As far as Facebook is concerned. Uh, there's also just a group page. It's not that active, but that's another way. If you had any questions for me, you could get in touch. It's again, who are you people? And then it would be subtitled a close encounters documentary, just so that it didn't stand on Facebook alone as who are you people? I didn't want to. Right. Cause be, that can mean a lot that, of other things. Yeah. <laughs> like, who are you people? And it's like, what do you mean? You what do you mean by you people? Like, right. Yeah. I was expecting to get that a lot. And I'm like, Oh, are we sure we want to go this route? Cause I, I just, in this day and age, I just don't want to. Yeah, you got to watch that. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's not my idea. So, uh, but, um, yeah, so that's what you could also find me. And then of course, Jonathan Robinson, 
uh, if you're not already friends with me, yeah. let's be friends. So anyway, that, yeah, that's it. Uh, so I, there's no way I'm letting you go without putting you through a firing range. Oh, yes, please. Uh, the firing range. So uh, uh, anytime I have a creator on here, we have to we have to do this. So uh, and I figured you were, uh, you, were, you may have been hoping I would. I don't know. I was. So, yes. <laughs> so uh, you know we always start off with this one: uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Okay, good. We can continue. <laughs> uh, this this will see airing then. Uh, ah, yes. <laughs> uh, Joe or Cobra? Uh, I'm gonna say Cobra. Okay. Uh, Autobot or Decepticon? Decepticon. Okay. Uh, cake or pie? Yeah, I knew that was going to pop up. <laughs> I, th- I think the correct answer is pie, but I was going to say cake. Yeah. I think, I mean, because isn't it always you guys like pie? Well, so Chuck always liked pie. I always said cake. Yeah. Uh, but then my favorite dessert is cheesecake, which is technically a pie. Gee, okay, that's a conundrum. <laughs> I'm, I'm, then I'm going to be honest with everybody and then just say it's cake. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is, oh, this is the big debate one. Uh, uh, Duke or Flint? Okay. Only because Duke was always there for me as a toy. You know what I'm saying? And, and I yep. didn't have the honor of having, uh, Flint in my, collection at all not until i got him on card you know about three or four years ago that's the first time i ever had flint wow but but i I mean i i liked him on the show it's just sure because i always had him in toy form i think that's why i give him a little bit more you know i can i can respect that i can understand that (laughs) i think that's that's honestly uh why chuck and i both uh are on the opposites with that is because he same same as you he had duke as a kid and he Mm -hmm. That's the character connected with through the comics and everything else. Whereas I was more of the, I had Flint as a kid and never had Duke. And I connected more with the cartoon, which Flint was a much more prominent character in the cartoon. Uh, you know, Duke was, you know, we joke about it all the time. Duke was the guy that always got captured. Flint yes. Really didn't. So it was like, that was, that was the guy I looked up to. So yeah, I completely under, understand your reasoning. I will not hassle you like a hassle Chuck. That's part of the. <laughs> That that's what he gets as a co-host. It's you you have to deal with banter back and forth. So. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, I don't know if uh, Close Encounters would be the answer to this. If it is, you can give me your second one. Uh, your favorite Spielberg movie? Mm, well, it's got to be Raiders. Okay. I mean, it, it just you know hands down. Uh, even though I think. Honestly, I would say the second is going to be probably Schindler's List, quite honestly. But okay. Raiders for the fact that it was, you know, he was still uh, young and he was still, you know, learning, honing his skills. And then Schindler's List because he had matured and he had actually come yeah. full circle and he is he was well respected before. But if you didn't respect him before that time, you absolutely you loved him by the time you, you got through drying your eyes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would agree Raiders is my favorite. I mean, I'm a huge Indiana Jones fan in general. So. Absolutely, yeah. But uh, Schindler's List I, I, is an excellent pick because I will say it's the first time I, I went and saw that at 10 o'clock at night at a theater. Obviously, it ended around 1 in the morning. Yeah. And uh, I have never experienced, after a movie ended, uh, nobody moving and complete silence. Oh, yeah. 
Um, it was chilling. It was, but it, it was because it was so moving. And then, like maybe two, three minutes after of that, you heard applause. And this is at one in the Man. morning. But, but <laughs> when people applause, are tired. Yeah, yeah, applause in a theater alone, no matter what. Alone, time, you know, yeah. You just don't yeah. hear that anymore, not like it used to be in the yeah. 70s and the 80s. Yeah, yeah. and I will say uh, I that's a movie I've only seen once in my life. Oh. Uh, and it's not because it's not fantastic. It's what? phenomenal. Um, but because it's so moving and so heavy. Heck yeah. I don't know if I'll ever be in the mood to watch it again. <laughs> like, you know, like I feel like I need to be in a certain place to watch oh, it again. Oh, you so. most certainly do. I mean, it's it's just so morose. I mean, it's yeah. absolutely horrifying. I mean, it's almost like putting yourself through the Holocaust. Yeah. You know, like well, who who wants to go through that? You know, yeah. quite honestly, yeah. uh, I do own it. I just have not watched it correct. since I've owned it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm the same with you. And it's not one you just pop in. Oh, hey, kids, let's sit around and watch. Right. No one, you know, no one does that. But you know, uh, uh, saving part of Ryan is 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 beautiful. Quite honestly, I, I yeah. love that. And um, you know, I, I think uh, two other movies outside of Spielberg are uh, Shawshank Redemption and The oh, Elephant yeah. Man. And oh, yeah. two just, you know, uh, uh, absolutely. I think Elephant Man really uh, was one of those first emotional films, you know, to see someone else, you know, really uh, their pathological uh, uh, look into what this man had to go through, John Merrick. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, and, and him having just the. Once he was brought out of captivity, you know, as a circus freak, you know, yeah. just how sweet and humble he was given his status in life. And, yeah. you know, I thought that that was you know, to have been shot in black and white. And, you know, yeah. that was just an incredible film. But I, I, I'm sorry that, you know, I just have to mention, you know, when we're talking about favorite films, even outside of Spielberg, because everybody has a favorite Spielberg film. But there's those ones like that, that yeah. to this day, I, I'm really surprised I, I still mention Elephant yeah. Man. So. Yeah. Oh no, it's a it's a fantastic one. I've seen it several times. Uh, and uh, and and there's like there's those lists of movies where it's like uh, you I know I need to see at some point in my life. Luckily, that is not one of the ones that I need to see in nice. my life because I because I've seen it several times. Nice. Uh, Shawshank Redemption is is a movie that I can if it's on TV, I can start watching it wherever it is in it and and sit there and finish watching it. So oh goodness, it's, yeah. It's a phenomenal movie. So. Um, all right. So, uh, this one you knew had to come along, uh, when it comes to muffins, chocolate chip or, uh, blueberry. Well, again, I think the correct answer is supposed to be blueberry. <laughs> and then I think, you know, I, I mean, you know, being diabetic, anything chocolate just, you know, is absolutely going to be incredible, you know, like <laughs> if I can get it on my tongue. Uh, but I do appreciate a blueberry, uh, for an early morning. You know, delicacy. So well, I will say Chuck, Chuck is a blueberry. I'm a chocolate chip. So, that's, <laughs> so I, yeah, I, at my, in my greatest moment, I will say is, uh, when we had Bill Ratner on and I'm asking these questions and he's, <laughs> yeah. and he's siding with everything I do. And then we get to the blueberry chocolate chip muffin question and he says, starts going into blueberry and I'm like, Oh man, he's letting me down. And he goes, nah, forget it. Give me the chocolate chip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Screw the diet. I mean, cause right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, you knew this one had to come to, uh, is Chewbacca a sidekick? Yes, because I think nothing proves that more than basically um, uh, Han Solo, you know, the solo uh, Star Wars story. Uh, I, I think that that 
you know, you see Han is who he is, and that's it doesn't say Han and Chewie. You know, True. notice that the title True. of that doesn't. I mean, I have to say technically he is a psychic. As much as I love Chewbacca, and I, I know I'm probably ticking off a lot of people, but I <laughs> again, it doesn't say the Solo and Chewie film. Sure. You know, he that's picks, the sequel. Yes, he exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> but but he picks him up along with Lando yeah. and along with you know L three three seven or whatever that yeah. thing's called. But I mean, yeah. you know, it's like. It's not about them. This is Solo's story, and it's yeah. who surrounds him, who is by his side. And we were actually just talking today because uh, Chuck and my and a bunch of other friends were in a group text message every day, and we talk talk every day. And we actually did talk about the Solo movie, and I says, you know, it's really a shame that it didn't do better because it is actually a really fun film. So it's fun, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so uh, being, uh, I'm sure you're a collector, like. The rest of us, we were talking about toys earlier and everything else. Yes. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a toy, but uh, what would you say is, you, uh, and, and your children don't count, I understand that you're, <laughs> so what would you say is your most prized possession? Because your children aren't possessions. So what are going to say? What's your most prized possession from a collector standpoint? Uh, from Joe, uh, it would be an alternate head sculpt to um, Breaker. That, nice. uh, so I don't know, you may know the whole story with, uh, from Dan Klingensmith and how, yeah. um, there were those three characters that in, before the third wave was released in 84. And, uh, they had taken three characters, Zap, Short Fuse, and Breaker. Mm-hmm. And what they were going to do was reformat their heads because they didn't look anything like they, uh, were in the Marvel comic. Uh, uh, I mean, at least we know Short Fuse was supposed to have glasses, but mm-hmm. he didn't have them uh, on this figure that they redid. They just slightly parted his or put more detail in his hair or something weird like that. Uh, and then with Zap, he's Latino. There's yeah. no mustache, you know, yeah. like we're, we should he should have. And then Breaker, there shouldn't be a beard there. He should be totally clean shaven and blowing bubble gum, as right. we always saw. And the thing is that even the packaging doesn't really show a heavy beard at all. Right. Uh, it breakers on the packaging of the Ram itself and he doesn't have a beard yeah. on the Ram. So it's like, mm, okay, well, they decided they wanted to, I guess they were getting a lot of, they knew there was a lot of circulation probably with the comic and therefore they wanted to do, you know, the toy a little bit more justice because they f- I'm sure that they felt they had slighted the kids when they first introduced the wave in 82. The way that Gary Head, uh, the uh, big uh, toy collector that uh, passed away, uh, I think. Oh, yeah, Gary he, Goggles. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. He had um, told me that basically they kind of did it cheap by making, okay, uh, Steeler and uh, – Short fuse and um, oh, what was the flam? Uh, uh, oh gosh, what's his? Uh, <laughs> the one guy didn't have. Uh, uh, a lot of people have. What was your first figure that you? Oh, had? grunt. Uh, grunt. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not grunt. But anyway, well, oh, grunt, uh, oh uh, uh, um, it was uh, Chuck's first one was. Oh, it's um, Chuck's. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're good. Uh, so it's uh, F, and it's a uh, yes, uh, Flash. Flash. Thank you. Those yes. three have the same heads, but yeah. their hair color is all different, you know. And then of course you have Grunt and you have um uh Grand Slam and they have the same uh, faces and then you have Rock and Roll and you have 
uh, clutch and you have breaker, they're all the same faces. They did it on the cheap because, again, introducing a property that was supposed to be in competition with Star Wars. Right. And, you know, a property that they had, you know, tried to resurrect several times before it finally kind of just hit the dirt in what, 77 or 78 yeah. uh, with the eight inch line. Uh, they were, you know, it's going to be make or break time. And so they kind of had to do it on the cheap. The only specific uh, sculpts that they had were what? Scarlet, Snake Eyes, and uh, uh, the Ranger. Um, oh, my goodness. Oh, Stalker. Stalker. You know what I'm saying? So those they're the only three with unique heads, basically. Right. So the other ones, it was, was kind of like done to be cost efficient, you know. Yeah. And so I think it was from what I hear from those who are more knowledgeable than me, it's like they wanted to kind of put a little more value back into it because they had made quite a bit of money in 82 and 83. And uh, so for the third wave, they really want to kick it in, you know, high gear, but they had post, they they went so far as to make these photo samples uh, on card. And um, basically uh, there are like three or four sets of these uh, figures that are actually out there. I just have, for some weird reason, I've got one that's just the breaker, and it, it was all done production-like quality for photographic purposes only to be – if they had gone through with it, uh, wow. you know, they would have just put it into the catalogs and the Toy Fair magazines and stuff like that you know, to kind of yeah. show merchant of uh, yeah, the retailers. This is what we got coming out, but they decided – they're going to pull it because they didn't want mom and dad to be confused by the issue of why am I buying another breaker? Why am I buying another zap? You already got yeah. this guy, you know, right. and, and so how would you explain that to mother and dad? And sure. um, I, I had just met Gary Head uh, at uh, Joe, uh, Joe Fest uh, in, um, what was it, in uh, Dallas in 2014. Okay. I had talked with him, and he's he's like, are you going to be at the panel um, on uh, – uh, Sunday, I said, no, I got to get back home to the wife and everything. Uh, and he's like, well, let me give you a preview of what we're showing. And this is that, what I just described to you was everything that he had showed me. Yeah. And I'm like, well, is this for real? He's like, yeah, these are, you know, employee sourced from Hasbro. Wow. He's like, I don't want you telling anybody. I'm like, well, who am I going to tell? I'm nobody. Right, right. So I go home and that was it. You know, I figured that stuff would eventually hit the internet and everybody would, you know, all everybody be talking about on all the group pages, but it never happened like that. So that was in April of 2014. In June of 2014, I was sitting in bed and, uh, I said, well, I got a couple, you know, hundred dollars in PayPal. I feel like Mm -hmm. shopping. So I went on eBay and there was this kid. I say he was a kid. This is a guy probably my age. And he was listing all these carded GI Joe figures. And in every listing, he had a description that said uh, these were only photographed. They were never in the store, only for photographic purposes. It's like, what, what is he talking about, photographic purposes? And I get to a breaker. I'm like, oh, I don't. Ha- I need a breaker. I got to get a breaker. And so I look at him like, oh, man, it's the same breaker that Gary oh, showed wow. me back in April in Dallas. I said, what? Are the chances this has got to be a forgery? Someone saw that panel. Somebody made a custom. Someone is going to screw me over, but darn it, I'm going to try to buy this thing. So I asked the guy, I say, look, um, what is the lowest uh, you'll take for this? Uh, you know, because you have a starting bid at, you know, $50. I, and I meant to say not the lowest. I mean, what is the, the price yeah. you take for a buy it now? I meant to say. Sure, sure. And, yeah. and so I waited for his reply. He came back, you know, I'll take 
X amount of money. It was a, mm-hmm. it was a low number. Yeah. And I'm like, yes. How can you pass that up? Exactly. Yeah. Like, look, let's just say it's a forgery. Let's say it's fake. And right. I am at least backed by PayPal. Right. So, so I took a chance and then I contacted Gary and I said, Gary, you're not going to believe this. And I hope you still remember who I am, but this is what I just came across and I didn't hear anything. So I was going to get up for church the next morning and went to bed early. You know, I wake up to a tirade of just expletives and everything. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Where did you see it? Where is it? I, you know, like I can't believe. So it, it, that just told me immediately right there. Well, that means it must be real. Right. He's, he's reacting like, you know, we've just you know come across the Ark of the Covenant. And right. Right. So he I'm like, you know, I discussed with him and that was that was nice to have that kind of interaction with him before, you know, because he, he passed away like half a year later, which is the weirdest thing in the world. And yeah. uh, but again, that's something that shouldn't belong in my collection. It's something that, you know, uh, that's some other super collector should have had that. And, you know, I, I do still feel guilty to this day. But to answer your question, that is the piece uh, from the Joe side of the collection. So. Well, I would say that it absolutely should be something that you should have for the simple fact of how you feel about it with that. Uh, I have things that are in my collection that are, are like that, where it's just like, man, I can't believe I actually own this. Um, yeah. But I also know that the, because I feel that way about it, that it's, it's a treasured piece for me and it'll be something that, uh, that yeah, while other people might feel the same way about it, at least they know it's in a good home. Yeah. Me too. So, so I would say absolutely revel in it, be happy you have it. Uh, and, uh, the fact that you do feel that way means that it's with the right person. So, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the last question in the firing range to wrap up the, the 10, and we kind of touched on this a little earlier, which is, uh, this is a good one that John always brought up on the show is if you were not doing what you do today, what do you think you would be doing career wise? Mm. I would say it, my first, my first inclination was going to archaeology. And I think that's when I discovered, like, well, I think it was the love of the movie of Raiders that, right. <laughs> made, but, but there is still that, uh, love of history as well. Sure. And there's also the love of, a of a detailed profession. And I think that it, it might have been something with medicine. I think I probably okay. would have been a, uh, um, uh, maybe a chief medical examiner because that way I can't kill anybody. They're already dead. <laughs> so therefore it, it like a pathologist or a chief yeah. medical examiner, something like that, that probably would have brought me, you know, pleasure in, in knowing so much, you know, about, uh, the, the intricacies of the, uh, the human body and, you know, that, that it causes things. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think they, you know, but then again, you know, if you're a coroner or if you're someone like that, then how do you separate, you know, that yeah. part of your profession from getting going home and seeing children, you know, that want yeah. to run up to you and, you know, ask yeah, how the day was. That's the rough, that's the rough part, especially because uh, there's obviously children involved with that. So that's right. Uh, yeah. So that would be the hardest part. Uh, I guess, I guess with that, what they do is, you know, you go home and you appreciate that they are there and you hug them and yeah. hold on to them a little bit tighter, maybe or something. I think so. Uh, but, uh, Awesome. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, people don't know this, but uh, you had reached out to me and said, uh, hey, would you mind mentioning this on the show? Uh, just trying to reach out to to an audience that I think would appreciate it. And I said, 
well, would you want to come on and talk about it? And, <laughs> and you were like, that would be amazing. If I could get like 10, 15 minutes, that would be awesome. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm talking like a whole episode <laughs> where we talk about it. Cause I, it, it, I felt like it was something that I would find very interesting and, you know, it might not be true, but I always feel like if I find something interesting, there's probably an audience out there that's going to find it interesting. Um, I love documentaries, especially stuff, uh, related to entertainment industry. Um, things like this. I, like we talked about the drugs and all that type of stuff. I could give or take that type of stuff, but, yeah. uh, seeing the behind the scenes of, of different things is always interesting to me. So I was like, this probably could be a good audience. So I am grateful that, that you actually reached out to me. And if you're ever doing anything like this again, uh, please feel free to reach out. We'll have to have you on at some point though, just to talk, you know, again, same generation. We got to have you on just to talk about, you know, the stuff we grew up with and everything else at some point. So, yeah, I um, think that's what makes a community a community in that sense. Cause you know, we, we all have the same love yeah. and, and desire and passion for it and everything. And that's, uh, it, uh, otherwise, I think it is dead inside if none of that yeah. of that those two decades brought you any pleasure. I mean, I, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And uh anything that you can I don't I know sometimes things are a little hush hush or anything you can say that you're working on currently or what you have coming up uh that people might be want to know about? Um not nothing like the the line of um the documentary in the sense of a personal project uh uh from from what I do, there's a Warner Brothers film I'll be starting up at the end of October, a Hugh Jackman film. Cool. And uh, uh, I'm not even 100% sure that the title that I know it to be is the actual just working title or if gotcha. that's indeed what it will be released as. Uh, okay. Later, you know, I think after it's probably been released, I, I wouldn't mind talking about it, you know. Sure. But I just I, – I, there's confidentiality. I completely uh, understand know. that. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I don't know. Even if you know you tortured me, I wouldn't know much about it. <laughs> don't worry about that. I, <laughs> I'm not one for torture. Yeah. No, even in even in the you know with my uh, people I'm in touch with in the comic industry, there's a lot of times that uh, I'll they'll tell me things and and it's like like I, I can't tell you this, but I can tell you this, and I'm like, <laughs> but then but then you can't tell anyone. And I'm like, I get it. So. Uh, I will tell you there's oftentimes that, uh, Robert will talk to me because he's, I, he's, I could tell my wife, but she doesn't care. So, right. so yeah. he says, so I tell, he says, I like to ha- tell you cause he says, I know it's not going any further. Um, but even then he has to watch what he can, what he says to me and everything else. So I oh, completely yeah. understand that. But yeah, if, uh, at some point in the future, uh, we have you on, you can talk about it, then we'll talk about it. So that'd be great. Thank you. Um, I do want to mention to uh, listeners, uh, as far as my project, we talked about that a little, uh, mentioned a little bit earlier. Still have the Kickstarter going as of this recording, um, halfway through, uh, and we're about close to 40% funded. Uh, So have a little bit of work to do to get the rest of the way. Uh, Every little bit helps. I did make appearances on Pop Culture Leftovers, talking about it, what's on your mind, uh, the pull bag. Uh, So... And I know I have a lot of other people that have mentioned it on their shows. Uh, I want to thank everyone for getting the word out there. Uh, continue to spread it on social media because I cannot reach out to everybody on my own. Uh, and, uh, and like I said, every little bit of helps. There's, you know, everything from a dollar where you're just trying to throw something in to help me out, which is a very much appreciative $3 for the digital copy. Uh, so if you're international, that's a way to, to get the comic. 
um, $5 for the actual hard copy, all the way up to if you are a huge fan of Robert Atkins' art and who isn't, uh, he's doing a variant cover for it, and that's and you can get the original artwork for that. So uh, there's only one spot left, too, I'll throw out there, and, and it might still be available by this time this comes out. I'm going to try to get this out in the next couple days. Um, there's still one spot for a person to be drawn as one of the characters. So there was five spots, or four of them have been taken up already. So... Um, so that's pretty, pretty awesome. So, uh, again, I appreciate everyone that's gotten the word out there. Uh, as we talked about earlier, if I don't reach my goal here, this is going to get made one way or another. So it's, it's going to happen at some point. And, uh, when I've talked to people about the, the, uh, my ideas for the, where the story is going to go and everything else, uh, people have been thankfully very impressed by like, Oh my God, I can't believe you have all this kind of like, all this backstory that's going to be going on and you're going to be showing. And I'm like, yeah, it's how my mind works sometimes. So <laughs> it's a little scary for my wife who has to live with me every day. But, um, but yeah, so I, again, I appreciate it. If you guys can continue to get the word out there. And if you haven't backed it and want to, uh, remember that with Kickstarter, you do not get charged until October 20th. That is the end date. Uh, and you only get charged on October 20th if, uh, I hit my goal. So if you, if I do not reach my goal, you do not get charged anything. Um, so get in there early. Don't feel like you have to have the money right now. You just have to have the money by October 20th. Um, Jonathan, thank you. Thank you again for coming on this, sh- on the show to talk about the documentary. It is phenomenal people. I would highly recommend it. I do watch a lot of documentaries. Um, and, uh, this one was extremely enjoyable from beginning to end. Uh, it's, uh, and like I said, I do think it's very rewatchable, uh, because once you've heard the stories, you can go back and kind of really pay attention to, uh, the, the photos and the extra things that, that are shown throughout the, the video. Um, so definitely take advantage of your Amazon prime, look it up and, and check it out. So, um, so again, thank you very much for coming on and sharing kind of the behind the scenes of your behind the scenes documentary. Thank you very much, Ryan. I appreciate all the time you spent with me. Absolutely. So that will, with that, uh, you can find Star Joe's at starjoes.com. You can, uh, find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, uh, all the fun places. And, uh, if I didn't cover something this time, we'll cover it next time. But with that, I'll go ahead and close the episode by saying the force will be with you because knowing us is half the battle. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. my hometown brought in cameras and mics for sound built a rock canyon at an old air base hired me and my buddies to stand in place a close encounter of a different kind down on government and broad it was more like Hollywood and Vine They made a movie In Old Mobile Didn't think It was no big deal Till that mothership Made a touchdown They made a movie